This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. We are proud to welcome Linda Gordon. Um, In her new book, The Second Coming of the KKK, Dr. Gordon writes about the Klan's resurgence in the 1920s, how the group found a willing audience amidst a time of sweeping change by modeling itself on various fraternal organizations at the time. By enlisting much of the professional class into its ranks, the Klan was able to pass on its ideas into politics under a carefully curated veneer of respectability. Clay Risen writes in the New York Times, quote, in Gordon's telling, the second clan is at once utterly bizarre and undeniably American. The 2010s may not be may not be the 1920s, but for anyone concerned with our present condition, the second coming of the KKK should be required reading. Linda Gordon is a professor of history at NYU. She is the author of Dorothea Lang um, and also Impounded and is the co-author of Feminism Unfinished. She has been awarded two Bancroft Prizes and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Linda Gordon. Thanks everyone. want to thank you for your interest and thank you for coming out on a very cold night. Um, Anyway, I want to thank Politics and Prose as well as all of you. You know, when I talk about the 1920s Klan, I always have to start by saying a few words (coughs) about the first Klan. The first Ku Klux Klan arose immediately after the Civil War, and it had one purpose, and that was to maintain white supremacy at all costs, and to do it by incredibly and violent intimidation of African Americans. Uh, Over the course of its life, something approaching 4,500 people were lynched. The second Klan differed in seven ways, and I don't expect you to remember them, but I'm gonna list them all. First of all, it was not at all secret. Second, it was a mass movement numbering in the millions, some claim between three and five million members. It was strongest in the North. Fourth, it was mainly nonviolent, not exclusively, but mainly. Uh, Fifth, it adopted an electoral strategy and ran candidates in elections. It elected 11 governors, 45 congressmen, (laughs) not to mention any of the thousands of state and local officials, and these were people who ran as Klansmen. Uh, The sixth difference is that it included women, and the second is that it created a huge success by two really brilliant strategic strokes. The first was to expand its enemies list, you might say, to include Catholics, Jews, Uh, Orthodox, Muslims, anyone except white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And the second uh, stroke of luck was to associate itself constantly with patriotism. One of their favorite phrases was that they stood for 100% Americanism. And when you listen to how they talked about that, you would understand that um, 
who they were considering not 100% Americanism. Um, the, uh, the fact that they were adopted this patriotic veneer shows <coughs> in a really interesting set of language, uh, words that they used. A non-member of a, the Klan was known as an alien and an initiation ceremony by which people were uh, pulled into the Klan formally was called a naturalization. They frequently used cartoons of Uncle Sam in Ku Klux Klan gear. Now, this, these two really brilliant strategies uh, came from, believe it or not, a PR firm hired by the founder of the Second Klan. And to the best of my knowledge, this may be the first time that a social movement hired a PR firm. Uh, and this PR firm offered them really state-of-the-art organizing uh, technology. And I'm just going to mention two pieces of that. The first, recruitment by commission. Uh, a new member had to pay an initiation fee of $10. That's worth well over $100 today. A recruiter who brought this new member in could keep 40% of that. That member could, in turn, recruit someone else and keep 40% of that. Ultimately, as you see, this is a pyramid scheme because if you get far enough, you're going to run out of people to recruit and no longer be able to do that. And that is one of the factors that led to the Klan's rather rapid decline uh, late, in the, uh, late in the century. Um, the second was a strategy of using mass pageants, which were also uh, quintessentially American or Americanized in their verb words because they usually held them on July 4th outdoors. I uh, think an absolutely massive county fair. And I'm just going to read you a, a short section from the book. A July 4th picnic in Cop Kokomo, Indiana in 1923 was the town's event of the decade, a fabulous carnival. Some said 50,000 people came, while others said 200,000. No doubt a wild exaggeration, but one that reflected the celebratory mood. Reserved train cars brought in people from throughout Indiana and nearby states. The food was so plentiful, it required several rows of tables, each extending the distance of a block. In addition to the heaps of casseroles and desserts that the Klan's women brought, the organizers provided 5,000 cases of pop and near beer. Remember, this is Prohibition, and the Klan were ardent supporters of Prohibition. 55,000 buns, six tons of beef, 250 pounds of coffee, and 2,500 pies. To entertain the kids, organizers had set up a children's area with games and sports. Grown-ups could watch a six-round boxing match, a boys' singing quartet, circus performers, an evening film, then known as a talkie. Uh, the, the climax was when a small airplane, the Klan owned and used several airplanes, circled overhead with a large white cross uh, flashing from the bottom of the fuselage while an acrobat performed daredevil feats on the wings of the plane. Then when it landed, 
a red carpet was pulled out, and the imperial wizard arrived in full regalia. Um, crosses were burned at these events, always. <laughs> uh, some of them reportedly 50 feet high. I don't know if I believe it. But these crosses had a slightly different meaning from the crosses used by the first clan. The first clan typically burned crosses directly on a person's property or very close to it. It was a direct personal threat that you are uh, being warned not to step out of line. The second clan's crosses were, you might say, a threat, but of a much more generalized sort. Uh, it was a statement of their power, a statement of their evangelical Protestantism, and the clan's people were mostly evangelical Protestants. Um, they were indirect threats. Um, they, they got so big that after a while they stopped using burning crosses and lit them with light bulbs. Um, just as one example, um, in the 1924 Democratic Party convention that I can mention again later, which was held in Madison Square Garden in New York, the Klan erected a giant burning cross just across the river in New Jersey so that if you went close to the river from the New York side, you would see it. It was passionate about prohibition, but this was also racialized because in Klan talk, it's only Catholics who drink and only Jews who make and sell the liquor. Uh, it was very suspicious of science, particularly evolutionary theory. Some of you may know about the 1925 trial of a man called Scopes, a teacher who dared to teach evolution in his classes. Uh, William Jennings Bryan, who was a prosecutor in that case, was one of the Klan's great heroes. Um, the Klan also had a very distorted kind of class analysis, although I think some of you may be familiar with seeing it again today, and that is that the evils of the United States uh, that were taking place in the United States were constructed by these Catholics and Jews, but particularly by urban, secular, and cosmopolitan people. Cosmopolitanism was a great sin because it showed or implied that you were not sufficiently patriotic. Uh, they were isolationists. They had a very hostile attitude toward anything, uh, anything European. Now, while both Catholics and Jews were un-American. They were un-American in different ways, so I'll just say a few words about each. Catholics were un-American, obviously, to the Klan because they were loyal to the Pope. Uh, and I would point out that the right wing made this charge as late as recently as the candidacy of, of John Kennedy. Um, the Klan propaganda about the Catholics involved uh, a constant use of fake news, with which some of you are probably also familiar, but with these claims that seem will seem to you completely outrageous. For example, the Klan claimed that these all these immigrants who had been pouring into the United States, the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, they didn't come because they were poor. They didn't come because they were persecuted. They came because the Pope ordered them to come. And they were 
to be, go underground. They were sort of like moles in a spy story who were these underground people waiting for the, the signal from the Pope that it was time for the coup that would take over the United States. Um, I could I give you more of these examples, but the proof of Jewish conspiracy was a little bit different. It too had a foreign authority, and that was a, f a famous forgery called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This was a forgery that came from Russia. Uh, it detailed a Jewish plan to achieve world domination through their control of all of the financial um, apparatus. Um, this came into the United States thanks to Henry Ford. Henry Ford, an arch anti-Semite, uh, published and distributed what he said were 500,000 copies of these protocols, obviously translated uh, into English. Um, of course, there was the Jewish guilt because they killed Jesus. But the charges against the Jews that were more immediate had to do with, on the one hand, the notion that Jews are always predatory merchants. You can never trust a Jewish person to do business with. Perhaps even more important was the problem of Hollywood. The Jews ran Hollywood, and they did in, on the whole. But the reason they built Hollywood was not to make money, not to entertain people, but in order to subvert American morals, which they did by featuring women in skimpy clothing, uh, risque plots, uh, etc. Um, there's also a very important difference between clan anti-Catholicism and anti-Semitism. If you were a Catholic, you could convert to Protestantism and then you would be fine. A Jew could never do that. A Jew was evil in his or her absolute uh, bodily essence. In fact, the imperial wizard uh, commented once that um, a good Jew, uh, how did he say it? Um, a Jew can, will not be a good American precisely because he is a good Jew. Um, there's also, just to add a little bit of levity, there's one particular clan story that I've always enjoyed. You probably know the story of Jonah and the whale. The whale swallowed him. He came out whole. The clan, and never mind the fact that that's a Jewish story, but um, <laughs> the clan's version of that was that the reason he came out was that he was spit out because Jews are indigestible. <laughs> And the indigestibility is, of course, <coughs> a, a, a metaphor for their fact that they can never be assimilated. They can never become uh, good Americans. Um, now, I want to make a slight uh, detour here because I think rather than just condemning the Klan, we need to think about something else. And that is, I think it is quite possible that a majority of American white Protestants scorned Catholics and Jews at this time. Um, you probably know that this was the era in which all major universities had Jewish quotas. Um, they were often justified with the idea that they were trying to keep a balanced student body, but everyone knew what it was really about. 
Like all fraternal orders, the clan offered the pleasures of male bonding. And the most intense male bonding came from vigilantism, from direct attacks. The, the leader of the clan had to walk a very delicate line, the it, uh, a lot of dog whistling. Uh, in most public speeches, he would claim that we are absolutely nonviolent, we are completely within the law. But the, the clan also knew that the promise of being able to, to participate in this vigilante action was a key recruiting device because it really attracted particularly young men. Uh, they loved to conduct raids against uh, saloons and bootleggers. Um, they um, sometimes got into fights actually because opponents of the Klan attacked them during their parades and, and cross burnings. Um, some of you may be familiar if you've read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X's family was run out of Omaha, Nebraska by this a typical Klan vigilante action. They did not physically attack anyone in the family, but on their horses, they rode around and around and around the house. And the, the family of the Littles, that was uh, Malcolm X's original name, got the message and left Omaha for good. Women also clamored to join the Klan. There were probably 1.5 million Klanswomen, and they claimed to have chapters in all 48 states. Um, they claimed, for example, that in Indiana, one of the Klan's uh, biggest states, they had 250,000 members, and if that were true, that would have meant that 32% of the white Protestant women in that state belonged to the Klan. Again, I suspect it's an exaggeration. Um, let me just conclude uh, by mentioning a few things that the Klan achieved. The Klan did decline rather quickly. By the late 1920s, it was just bleeding members, very, very reduced. And there probably may, it probably declined due mainly to in internal problems, the problem of monetary corruption, the problem of uh, even criminal behavior and a, a final um, kind of last straw for a lot of people was when the Grand Dragon of Indiana, David Stevenson, was actually convicted, and this is actually the only time in the 1920s that I know of that a Klan's person was convicted of this kind of crime. He was convicted of kidnapping, raping, torturing, and then murdering his secretary. This was a major uh, event. It was covered in the national press, and for a lot of people that was probably too much. But it had accomplished a lot. I mentioned the Democratic Convention of 1924. The leading candidate was Al Smith, the governor of New York. Al Smith was a Catholic. Uh, the Klan went all out to do everything possible to defeat Al Smith, and they did it. Uh, they had to go through 103 ballots. This was the longest convention in American history. Um, but, and in fact, it was so, there were actually fisticuffs on the floor, and the convention became known in the papers as the Klan Bank. Uh, Al Smith lost the nomination, the Democrats lost the 
presidential race. I'm not sure Al Smith would have won, but this was a very, very public national demonstration of Klan power. Uh, meanwhile, Klan influence, not, not alone Klan influence, but certainly Klanish thinking was creating the many eugenics laws that were passed throughout this country and the states, the anti-miscegenation laws that uh, pretty much most of the states adopted in this period, but perhaps the greatest victory of the Klan was the 1924 Immigration Act. This was the first time the federal government had restricted <coughs> immigration into the United States in any way, but they did not do so simply by saying, we'll only accept this many people. They installed into law a hierarchy of uh, the ethnicities and religions from the most superior people, the Nordics, as the Klan liked to call them, to the most inferior. The superior ones got big quotas, the inferior ones got very small quotas. And um, I do want to remind you, because I think a lot of people um, you know, forget this, that that law was uh, on the books, that was the law of the land until 1965. That law that represented exactly Klan bigotry was um, our law until then. Um, I'll just conclude. I, I'm sure many people here, as I do, see some parallels with some things going on today. I do want to make it clear that I have no particular expertise about today's alt-right or what I call clannish groups. I know what I read in the paper, just like you, you do. And furthermore, I don't think we can imagine that we're seeing an exact replica of what happened in the 1920s. There's a, a popular quote uh, that is falsely attributed to Mark Twain, but it's a very good quote anyway, which is that history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Um, and I expect that many of you will make uh, connections on your own. Um, and I think I'll stop there and say I'd just love to hear your comments or questions or whatever we have time for. Um, could you talk some about the organizing strategy used by the Klan? I understand how you talked about the outreach, the fairs, but had, besides the camaraderie of you know, going after people they didn't like, how did they involve people on an ongoing basis and build their base? Re really good question. Um, the Klan was built communities wherever uh, it had chapters. And Clans people could spend uh, basically all of their leisure time in clan activities. There were clubs of every sort. There were bands. There were baseball teams. There were, uh, you know, uh, children's clans. You know, akin to the Cub Scouts. Uh, they were really masters of building that kind of community. Um, another major force uh, were the sermons of ministers. Uh, the Klan claimed to have 40,000 ministers who were members, and it attracted them by uh, inviting ministers to join the Klan without having to pay the initiation fee or the dues. Uh, and 
even if that 40,000 is a wild exaggeration, we know that thousands of ministers were openly lauding the Klan. And the Klan was very careful to make, make it clear that it was not uh, a substitute for the, the churches of these ministers, but it was an aim to help build uh, the population of, of these churches. The Klan also liked to, one little trick about the churches, they liked to come uh, in full regalia into a church in the middle of a service and present the church with a cash gift. And you know, a lot of these evangelical churches, the minister didn't have a lot of money, had, had problems keeping uh, their, com uh, their congregation going. And so in some ways, um, they were being bought. Thank you for the informative discussion. I was impressed by your focus on the public nature of the, the Klan part that you studied. And you mentioned funding only in the context of individual the pyramid kind of structure you described. But I was curious, since it was public, and my image of the Klan is that there were businesses that supported Are there Were there significant businesses that were identifiable that might be worth describing? A really good question. The Klan itself had about 150 print uh, media, and it operated two radio stations. So it was very big in that way, but they had a real, a whole um, program of what I call <laughs> economic warfare. Uh, it was designed to drive out uh, any uh, shop owners who were black, who were Jewish, who were Catholic. They did this by creating a kind of a poster or a small placard that would say something like, this business is 100% American. And everyone knew what that meant. Now, I'm not sure how successful they were. Someone who's studied um, the Klan the a while ago and actually a, a long enough ago that, that she could actually interview people who had been members of the Klan she thought that a lot of the women said that the women were just basically going to go on and shop where they were accustomed to shopping. And when they tried to go after a really big business, like, say, the Myron Frank department store w in Portland, which was then the biggest department store chain west of the Mississippi, well, they, they just couldn't make a budge. And the same thing was true of Hollywood. They tried to get people not to watch these <laughs> movies, but that was just a non-starter. However, they did love to make presentations of this famous movie, Birth of a Nation, which they did all over the country. And it was very, th very much exactly uh, the Klan's notion, which is to build fear with these claims that these aliens were trying to take over the country. Um, can you uh, elaborate a little bit more on the miscegenation laws? On the what? Miscegenation. Sorry. Misogenation. Thank you. Miscegenation. You're right. Miscegenation. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm still not getting the word. What? Miscegenation. Oh, miscegenation. Sorry. sorry. Uh, well, what can I say? Uh, the the complicated thing about miscegenation is uh, by these laws that banned marriage between someone who is white and someone who is not white. It actually involved the United States in doing something that was common in South Africa, but uh, n not many people understand that the U.S. Uh, courts were involved, and that is that courts were 
uh, brought in to decide who was white because there were plenty of people who the Klan thought claimed to be white or other people who were not really white. Um, there were even occasions in which the opposite happened, in which someone who was white or looked white wanted to be declared a person of color so they could marry the person that they loved who was a person of color. So uh, in this sense, the courts, and that does include the federal courts, were sometimes involved in this uh, determination of race and it makes it quite clear that race was actually a legal uh, situation for many people, uh, something that you could not escape. Uh, yeah, <coughs> um, thank you for the uh, informative talk tonight. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the Klan were uh, ardent Christians, uh, evangelical Christians. Can you uh, speak to perhaps some of the biblical scriptures that they used to justify their rhetoric, like what were you know, certain things out of the Old or perhaps New Testament? Yeah, yeah that's that a great question, but I just can't answer it. I don't know that. What I do know is that um, the Klan had relatively little success. Well, obviously, black evangelical churches, they had no success with at all, but they also had very little success with the uh, groups that are known as mainline Protestants, with where we're talking about Lutherans, Episcopalians, and so on. Um, but, and they love one of the particular cartoons that they used over and over again uh, was an illustration of their statement, if Jesus was alive today, he would be a Klansman, and they would have <laughs> pictures of Jesus mm -hmm. in Klan robes performing some of the, the classic acts that Jesus did, like turning water into wine and so on. But unfortunately, I'm too ignorant about uh, their scriptural stuff to be able to answer your question. Okay, thank you. Thank you uh, for your presentation. Uh, a quick uh, point uh, and question. First point is I, I, I liked how you uh, noted that uh, there, very often historically the Klan is, is viewed as a historically male organization, yeah. but in, in, in reality, uh, white women were very much involved and uh, enthusiastic <laughs> about the organization. Uh, but the question I have is, you talked about the numbers of the Klan, but I'm also interested in, there had to be a large number of people who didn't necessarily associate themselves as being a part of the Klan, but at the same time supported the Klan and the massive infrastructure it took, uh, not relating it to today, I'm not I'm shying away from that, but talk about that a bit of the, the actual massive infrastructure that did not necessarily call themselves Klan's people, but were indeed very much supportive. Absolutely, and in fact, I, I often in the book use the term clannish because I want to include people who were not actually members, and I, I hinted at it by saying, and I think it's quite likely true, that a majority of white Protestants, particularly evangelicals, agreed with the Klan's racial and religious uh, bigotry. Um, Oh, I, I lost the second. Oh, the second half of the question was. Oh, oh I just uh, talked about the infrastructure it took. Oh, in order the to infrastructure, right. The this is going to come as a shock to many of you. The Klan was a for-profit corporation. It was registered as a for-profit corporation. And when the Hiram Evans, the second imperial wizard, succeeded William Simmons, he had to buy it 
from the previous leader. And this has, says a lot about their, you might say, politics, which is, you know, people like to call this populist, and I really don't like that term at all because there was absolutely nothing, nothing that the Klan ever said or did that was intended to support or be in favor of what we might call the 99%. They were absolutely committed to the profit motive. They believed that the profit motive is what built America. They worshiped uh, big capitalists. Now, it, it's true that we don't usually find a lot of the very, very rich members of the Klan, but it is also true that it's simply not the case that the Klan was a movement, a lot of people like to say this is just a movement of clodhoppers, rural hicks, uneducated people. Absolutely false. Uh, there have been some studies of Klan membership lists that shows that their average educational level was at least as high and often higher than that of the population around them. They had many uh, lower professionals, school teachers, but also plenty, plenty of lawyers. So there was a tremendous amount of money flowing. And with that money, they really were very good at doing mass propaganda. I said 150 newspapers, radio stations, but also these extravaganzas. These, and remember, this is an era when uh, people even went to lectures and paid to go to lectures, and the Klan um, groomed uh, lecturers who were apparently extremely charismatic, and people would go s refer to the fact that they would go to hear the same lecturer give the same lecture repeatedly because it was so vivid and so entertaining. But let me, even though you didn't ask that, let me just say a word about women. Um, I named the chapter about that clan feminism, and I was expecting to get a lot of flack for that because I think a lot of people would like to believe that someone who's a feminist uh, would not be a racist, would not be uh, such a bigot. And in fact, that, that's not true. And furthermore, it is not as if the men pulled the women into the Klan the other way around. Women clamored to get into the Klan, forced the Klan to accept them as an auxiliary known as the Women's Ku Klux Klan. So they were very active in their own right. Plus, of course, when you think about, you know, all these, like the picnic I described, you can imagine who was doing the labor of getting that together. That is the labor that is done by women. And the women developed and were in charge of the groups for the little children. Uh, they also, women conducted uh, clan christenings. I think there's a picture of one in the book where the uh, people in clan regalia would get together to christen, with a minister, to christen a baby. Uh, this question may be outside the scope of your research, but as you were talking about the clan's public events, the mass mar marches, the uh, parades at night, and the light lighting of crosses and all, it reminds me of the Hitler movement in Germany. Uh, was, was, was Hitler in any way, uh, did he uh, know about the Klan at all, or did he adopt, or was he just a one-off and didn't, didn't know about the Klan wh whatsoever? Because I, I find it fascinating that they were, those were this heron folk democracy of us versus them and, yeah. and whatnot. Well, you know, I can't say for a fact, and uh, you'd have to talk to someone who really knows German history, but I can't imagine that Hitler didn't 
know about the Klan because it was so big, it was so publicized in the major newspapers that that's just uh, almost certain. And it is true also that, you know, these kind of things that the Nazis like to stage, these mass uh, things at Nuremberg and the marches and so on, that was actually in some ways a pretty popular uh, mode at that time that was used across the political the political spectrum. What's uh, the interesting connection for me between the Klan and the Nazis is what happened in the 30s. Uh, as I said, the second Klan became much, much smaller. It never died, but it became much smaller. But what we have seen is that in the 30s, many clanspeople became ardent supporters of Father Coughlin, mm. who was a big radio personality in a way, the original kind of shock jock. But Father Coughlin was a Catholic. <laughs> and so it's fascinating that they were quite willing to sort of shed that to go along. And then we also know, more anecdotally, I don't know if we know figures, but quite a number of Klan's people went into the American neo-Nazi groups in the f in the, and later in the 30s, the Silver Shirts, the Black Shirts, the German-American Bund, and so on. So they definitely, some of those people definitely felt an, af an affinity with na Nazi National Socialism. Yeah, I'm interested in the influence of the Klan after their demise in the 20s um, in two areas. One is politically, and I guess the other is, I don't know, socially. Um, I heard you on the radio this morning mentioning that um, Franklin Roosevelt wouldn't even support the anti-lynching law because of influence or pressure from you know, the, the Southern, his Southern Democratic members. Um, and secondly, uh, although the, I guess there was the demise of the Klan, as you said, we still remember you know, photos in the 40s, 50s of uh, people dressed up in Klan regalia um, know, opposing the civil rights movement in the in the South, which was obviously Klan-inspired, if not um, officially Klan uh, right. events. Um, you're hitting at a really important point. In the 1920s, the Klan was absolutely respectable. There, people could oppose it and argue against it, but it they advertised in newspapers. There were. Uh, in many universities, including the University of Wisconsin, where I used to teach, the Klan was a registered fraternity. Um, many police forces were were really, um, in fact, the police were the, uh, law enforcement officers were the single largest uh, occupational category in the Klan per capita. Um, but, um, I lost the second. The political influence in oh, terms yeah, of Roosevelt. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to measure that. And I don't want to say that it's only the Klan because there are plenty of other groups. But two things happened that led to a, a level of stigmatizing of the Klan. The first was obviously World War II and the fact that the Nazis were our enemy. But the second was the civil rights movement in which uh, even people who were not enthusiastic about the movement and may have, have been racist themselves, but they sort of began to see that the Klan was a slightly stigmatized thing and they didn't want to advertise uh, their membership. But one of the things that's totally visible today, uh, you know, the Klan is today just one small uh, organization among many, many alt-right white nationalist groups, so we should not fetishize 
fetishize the organization itself as opposed to uh, the spirit and the ideas of the clan. Um, I'm Betsy Griffith. I teach women's history here at Politics and Prose, and we use your book, The um, Feminism Unfinished. I recommend it to everybody, as well as this one, which I've already begun. Since the period that you're writing about, sort of 1917 into the end of the 20s, parallels the time of the culmination of suffrage and um, the immediate enthusiasm about whether women would make a difference in American politics in the 20s. How do you see these two movements um, in parallel or in conflict? Uh, could you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, um, you know, the, the uh, some obviously know that the women won the suffrage in 1920, and there had been uh, a campaign previous to that, but the real 20s clan that we're talking about only arose after women had the vote. And they, they may not have supported it before, but they were very enthusiastic about it once it came because they saw it as meaning more votes for them. Uh, however, there's a contradiction there, and I have a hunch, I've seen it in other places, that you get this contradiction in a lot of, of women in a lot of conservative movements. If you look at what they said and what they read about women and gender, they would say, oh, women belong in the home, women's uh, destiny is to be good mothers and to support their husbands, et cetera, et cetera. But once they got involved in this political activity, they really enjoyed it, and they began to defy the male leadership of the Klan. Uh, they did it in several ways. Um, for example, they, uh, over the wishes of the Klan itself, they moved the headquarters of the Women's Ku Klux Klan out of Atlanta to establish it. Uh, in a separate place. In a number of groups, they began to resent or even refuse to send part of their dues upward to the Klan itself. Um, I think we, we've seen that again and again, that women get out into the public sphere and find that it's really enjoyable, as well as the fact that it creates uh, bonding. And, and one thing I, I haven't mentioned that's important is that the Klan's local chapters were very important in creating a sense of community and solidarity. And my sense is that women were enjoying that uh, intensely in their membership of the Klan. And, and in that sense, they weren't different from women with different kind of politics. Was there a women's, a Klan's women's march on Washington in the 20s? No, there was a major march in 1925. Uh, in which the women had a, a major section of it. They were marching. It was a combination of a march and a classic lobbying thing because the, they marched in full regalia in very large numbers uh, from the Capitol down Constitution Avenue. Uh, but they also put on plain clothes and went to lobby uh, various congresspeople for their what they wanted to do. But there was in the, that march one really uh, delightful little thing, which is the Klan Women's Band played <laughs> to entertain them. Thank you for your work. Uh, I had a, a related uh, question. Um, my, um, my grandmother was a, a real active um, leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union um, right. in Alabama, for the state of Alabama. Also, know she held virulent anti or anti-Semitic, absolutely anti-Catholic views. Yes. And um, 
have you seen a connection between oh, yeah. uh, WCTU and the Klan? Yeah, there was a huge overlap between uh, the, uh, the WCTU, Women's Christian Temperance Union, and the Klan. Um, part of it has to do with their intense support for prohibition. But it is true, you know, the Women's Christian Temperance Union has a very complex history because in some ways you could call it a fairly liberal, progressive organization in terms of some of the things that it stood for. But their analysis of drinking was basically that Catholics are the problem. And uh, Catholics and the sinful big cities, which is where people drank, uh, on the other hand, one of the problems the Klan had is that their leaders were constantly being caught drinking. So, <laughs> and you, in local terms anyway, that would be a, a small scandal. Uh, but the, the two women's organizations that had the most overlap with the Klan were the WCTU and the Daughters of the American Revolution. Slightly different um, uh, different politics, but uh, but both of them feeling absolutely welcome and that they belonged in the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, um. Please. No, there's no connection with Germany. It's, you know, there are a lot of people who argue differently about where the the KKK came from. Some some people associate it with the Greek notion of the Cyclops, uh, and some of the clan. Um, they they had this whole <coughs> rigmarole, you know, this arcane um, uh, codes and words, and everything got new names. Uh, in fact, you know. They, they renamed the days of the week. They renamed <laughs> the months of the year. But, uh, and in many, many respects, uh, this was very similar to what was going on in a lot of other fraternal groups. But to the best of my knowledge, no one is absolutely sure where the name Ku Klux Klan came from. What led to the decline of the Klan in the late 20s? Um, you know, um, I'd like to say that there was a big protest movement, but there wasn't. Um, several things. First of all, uh, money. There was always a lot of turnover. And um, one, there's just one uh, example of this. There's one uh, scholar in Oregon who actually found the minutes of a Klan chapter and published it. And one of the things you see is that they're constantly nagging at their members to pay their dues. Uh, so we have a sense that uh, a lot of people began, a lot of members began to think, well, the Klan isn't really doing anything. And one common uh, statement that I saw over and over again is uh, people saying, well, it seems like all the Klan ever does is to recruit more people into the Klan. And that has to do, of course, with the financial structure. But it, there was also a cascading s uh, series of scandalous behaviors uh, on the part of Klan leaders. And some of those involved direct corruption. And I think, suspect that members began to uh, dislike that. I mean, for example, the Grand Dragon of Indiana that I mentioned has spent Klan money on a, a huge yacht, which he kept in Lake Erie. And 
in that used it to invite politicians so uh, to wine and dine them. I mean, they were pretty sophisticated in, in that respect. Um, but I, I think it's also at, at some level that a lot of people just got bored with it. Uh, because it, after a certain point, the repetition of these rituals and all the hocus-pocus that wasn't really going in anywhere, except for the marches, there wasn't a participatory aspect. Thank you. What was the relationship between the Klan and the mainline press? Well, a lot. The, the, the Klan got a lot of favorable publicity from a lot of the press. On the other hand, they got a lot of criticism from what the big city elite, a Republican-leaning, but you remember Republican meant something different in the 1920s. It wasn't necessarily conservative. The problem with the attacks of the mainline press, and my impression is that the more they attacked, it only helped the Klan because they're they spoke with the Klan with total disdain. These people are just dumb, they're uneducated, they're hicks, uh, we shouldn't pay any attention to them, right? And first of all, that they were wrong, and secondly, um, that's not a way to, uh, that's not a, a good way to understand uh, what was going on. For one example of this is criticism in that there was a big ex quote expose of the Klan very early on in the New York world. I think that was the name of the paper. I'm maybe mis, you know, serialized over a couple weeks. The reports were, and it was very, very critical. The reports were that Klan membership shot up. Then there was a congressional investigation of the Klan. Uh, pushed by some of the, these Eastern mainline, you might say, people. And again, uh, well, nothing, nothing was done, uh, but in, in other words, it's not as if this, these hearings led to any action against the Klan. But again, uh, the reports were that it just gave the Klan free publicity. Um, so I, I think part of this is, uh, you know, this, this, there's certain in a in certain sense, I'm sympathetic to the Klan that there is a kind of snobbery uh, with which uh, urban elites and secular people looked at them. Uh, not that I want to defend the Klan in any way, but I don't think that that snobbery, as I said, is neither accurate nor helpful. What was the um, impetus of the KKK coming back, though, in the 20s? I, th I think it was largely the massive immigration. Uh, I think the second uh, contributing factor was, you know, after right after World War II, there was a World, World War One. Uh, World War One, excuse yeah. me. There was a big kind of anti-red, anti-dissent movement. Uh, there was actually quite a number of repression, a lot of repression, a lot of deportations uh, of people. Um, and I think that said, although, you know, I was surprised that the 1920s Klan did not talk anti-communism very much. That is not a major theme. Their, their theme is straight bigotry, bigotry, bigotry. But I think that what happened after World War I set, this, set a tone that there were these aliens in the United States who wished evil for the United States and that it was right to suppress them. But um, 
you know, the thing about the waves of immigration, I think one of the things I learned from this book is it's not only that the Klan revved up uh, bigoted views that people already had, but it was actually able to create them where it did not previously exist. So for example, you take a state like Oregon. Oregon had almost no Catholics, very, very few Jews, and yet that Klan had a very big success in using that. And I think what it comes down to is, you know, all of this arrives from making people fearful with these outrageous claims that people are wishing evil on the United States, but also once you arouse people to be concerned about a threat, then what the Klan would do is to say, well, those are the people to blame. And the blame always goes downward, right? You never blame people with more wealth or more power. You only blame people who are already disadvantaged. And uh, remember that in the 1920s, still, uh, most Catholics and Jews were poor and working class. Did it have uh, anything to do with the production of uh, Birth of a Nation? Oh, yeah, they used Birth of a Nation wi widely. But Birth of a Nation came out in 1915. Um, William Simmons only got this idea for creating uh, the Klan in 1920. But certainly, uh, the, the impact of Birth of a Nation uh, was not only something that they noticed, but something that they used. You just alluded to Oregon. Uh, I was going to ask you how active the Klan was in the Pacific Coast states, particularly California in 1920. I guess I was under the impression that as you went far west, the activity declined. Well, it, uh, it was probably not as strong in California or Washington as it was, say, in Indiana or Kansas. But it was strong. And what's interesting about the Far West is, uh, it sounds like you probably know this, the racial configuration of the West is very different. It's not a question just of whites and blacks or Catholics and Jews. And so the Klan was completely flexible. Uh, and so in, in California, they went after Mexican and Mexican-American farm workers. And in fact, in, Cal in a couple places in California, they allied with the Catholics who were dominant, with the Irish Catholic churches who were feeling threatened by the Mexican Catholic churches that were rising. In Oregon and Washington, they went after the Japanese, uh, many of whom were uh, very successful truck farmers and uh, threatening uh, the white, uh, white farmers. Um, I'm not aware of any um, clan emphasis on American Indians. Uh, it may be there, because uh, I don't know everything, but uh, uh, they quickly adapted to the different racial uh, composition of the West Coast. Perhaps the Chinese in California oh, as absolutely. well. Oh, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, right. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.